Rebirth of Venus. I'm Caitlin Matanley, and I'm a spiritual mindset coach, a personal development junkie, an all-around Venus worshiper, and a powerful witch. I'm here to talk dirty about evolution, revolution, and how to embody the archetype of Venus, original bad bitch, every damn day. Thanks for listening. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Rebirth of Venus. This is Caitlin Matanley. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming to the party. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Oh, wait, you didn't ask. (laughs) Uh, That was like such a dad joke. Really not that funny. And the fact that I laughed so hard at it just goes to show that if anything, my sense of humor is declining rapidly as I enter my, my, um, silver fox years wait so are silver silver foxes are those i know like people often use that to uh describe like a male presenting or identifying individual who is like gray and sexy but okay so like i identify as female can i be a silver fox like i know there's whole like there's you know the whole cougar thing which is like kind of offensive because it reeks of the double standard but it's also kind of dope because like would you rather be a cougar or a silver fox? Like, obviously a cougar, way cooler animal. Side note, I recently learned that there's another term. And again, like, <laughs> this is meant as humor. I totally understand if you find these terms completely offensive, as they do definitely speak to the double standard of sexuality as we age for men and women and for female and male presenting individuals. And yet... I read an article somewhere on the internet, as I do, that was like, if you are, I think like to be a cougar, you have to be female identifying and be over 40 dating someone in their 20s. And I think you can be a puma. Yes, I'm not kidding. This is really an article I read probably like three o'clock in the morning, you know, in a, in a G hole, <laughs> a, a Google hole. That sounded really dirty. <laughs> Anyway, uh, you know, Google rabbit hole of whatever it is that I'm thinking of in the moment. Anyway, apparently you're a puma if you are over 30 and dating someone in their 20s. And yeah, I'm 34. <laughs> and my partner is 28. Anyway, is any of this relevant to the show? Not really. But I just feel like it had been a long time since I hopped on before an episode and had like a really you know, just silly, candid intro, which sometimes I, I actually worry. I'm like, people, are people going to get sick of me talking? I have a Gemini ascendant. I can talk. And worse, I have a, my Chiron is in Gemini. So I'm like terrified of being misunderstood and, (laughs) or like ignored. (laughs) In fact, I don't know which would be worse. Like somebody taking my words completely out of context and like, creating its story around them or just nobody listening astrologers out there send me advice anyway so I last night was dope it was the first night of boss witch university which is my six-week magical as fuck business course for dope weird 
badass spiritual entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs. And it was our first class. I'm super, super excited with the new group. I love working with a new group in a course context because I just like getting to know people. Again, like the Gemini Ascendant, I love connecting with people, especially because I'm actually an introvert, which may shock everybody listening. But really my dream is like a small, like not even a small, but like a a party of my choosing where it's filled with people who are interesting to me, some of whom I know already and some of whom I don't. And to me, that's pretty much why I do online courses. (laughs) Besides the fact that I want to like empower as many people as possible with this information. (laughs) But aside from that, I just, I, I get so excited about getting to new, getting to know the new people and, you know, hanging out with some people who I've already had in previous courses and programs or, you know, who I'm doing private coaching with who are doing the course as well. And it's just like such an exciting time of promise. And this is such a fun course because everyone is going to be starting their businesses that they've been thinking about, or maybe, you know, the people who wanted to start a business, but had no idea what to do are all going to be doing the fucking thing and figuring it out and making it happen. And the folks in the, in the course who, you know, have a business, holy shit. I just looked outside and the moon is amazing. Anyway, full moon tomorrow. Although by the time you listen to this, it'll be tonight. What was I saying? So the, oh yeah, people who already have businesses, you know, we're going to be going bigger and getting more clarity. So it's just really exciting. Yes, you can still get into the course. Um, head on over to rebirthofvenus.com, get the deets. It's a rolling admission course. So you can join at any point in the six weeks and you'll get the recordings of the classes we've had as well as the, the work, the homework that we've followed up with on each of those classes. And you'll get access, of course, to any live classes that you haven't missed yet. So really you won't miss anything. So go ahead, check it out and uh, join if you desire. Today I have an amazing, like a fucking amazing interview. It's, you know, I think it's actually my longest episode ever. With the exception, I have I have one really long episode where I talk about my tower year. It was like episode 11 or 12. I don't even remember. Um, I think it's called From Pluto to Venus. And that was like a really long one. But when I say long, it's like, Plug it in, get ready, listen, hang on every word because like the conversation was so good, deep, valuable, important. And, you know, I have important conversations with everyone who comes on the show, but this is a conversation that I has been one I have been wanting to go deep into on the show for a long time. And it's something I, it, it, many of the topics are things I touch on in every episode here and there, you know. I am definitely not afraid to call out my community and industry in terms of what we need to be doing better, including myself, because I'm not perfect by any means. Um, And I knew that this was a conversation that needed to happen in a deep, deep, delicious way, not just once, but repeatedly on the show. And that's going to be something that I'm really going to be focusing on even more going forward. So I'm not going to spoil it too much because I have the official, official intro to my guest coming up on the interview itself. 
Obviously, you've already had a spoiler because you've read the title of the episode. (laughs) But I am just so excited to share this information with you, to share this incredible, I was about to say educative resource, which is so not a word. Educational, that's the word. I prefer educative. That's just like... I think in general, I just prefer words that don't exist. Again, maybe it's my mercurial nature with all that Gemini or not even all that Gemini, just you know, the ascendant. It's a powerful placement. Anyway, I know you're going to love this episode. I encourage you to take this information and to really take it to heart, regardless of what, um, how you identify in terms of your background there is something for you to learn here. We're going to talk about how those who are listening, who are white, who are not people of color, who are non-indigenous, how you can become not just better allies, but better accomplices to the issues that surround daily life for people in our community who are people of color, who are indigenous, And I really, really encourage you, regardless of your cultural identity, to use this information in this episode to identify where you can do better. Because we all can do better, and we all need to do better. And in my opinion, spirituality and witchcraft and even personal development are all Areas that need to, I'm sorry, not need, that require a heavy social justice for all component. Because if we are focused on improving lives for ourselves, which is very important, you can't help others if you are in shambles. However, so many people stop there and don't recognize that if our magic doesn't, isn't magic for all, then honestly, there's no, there's no purpose to it. And that's the point that I want to drive home and that and other points are what we're going to be discussing with my guest today. So thank you, thank you, thank you for listening and enjoy the interview. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Rebirth of Venus. My name is Caitlin McTanley, and today I'm here with Megan Alexandria, also known as the Revolutionary Mystic. If you may follow them on Instagram or um, possibly follow their brand new fucking awesome podcast by the same name, the Revolutionary Mystic Podcast. Megan Alexandria is a Black, Indigenous, queer, anarcho-feminist who provides psychic services, spiritual guidance, and education to support personal sovereignty and evolutionary development. And today, I brought Megan Alexandria on the show to talk about the importance of decolonizing contemporary spirituality. These are topics I've talked about on the show before, and I'm so excited to dive into them with Megan today. So... I invited Megan on the show because I was actually introduced to their work through a video series that was done on IGTV. I had followed them for a while and I had, you know, you know how it is when you follow people on Instagram, you're like, this person seems cool. But it wasn't until I watched this series, it was a series of three videos titled 10 Things Non-Native American Folks Need to Hear. 
And this video series, which I'm going to link in the show notes below, was so valuable, so important, and really brought to light in a clear, easy to understand way, so many issues that I personally experienced and had with what I'll call the, you know, world of contemporary Instagram spirituality, this type of spirituality where on one hand, the more positive hand, lots of information is propagated and many people have access to different traditions and different uh, perspectives on spirituality. And then on the negative side, the origins get lost or just downright ignored. So I'm really excited to bring um, Megan Alexandria into this conversation today about how we can all, regardless of our cultural and personal backgrounds, decolonize contemporary spirituality and make sure that it is a more intersectional, empowering place for everyone. So I'd like to welcome you on the show, Megan Alexandria. Thank you for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me. What a wonderful, I'm like so thrilled to be here. And I, um, that's actually the first time I've heard about, you know, uh, how you found me. And I just feel really honored that, um, you know, it was that series of videos um, that, you know, kind of brought us together because that was something kind of very initiated by my ancestors. And so I just, I don't know. I just feel a lot of love for it being so well received by you. So thank you for mentioning that. And thank you for having me here. And thank you for providing that amazing educational resource, which I've sent to many people since. But <laughs> I let's start the conversation today. I would I, I want to hear about your background and your spiritual journey. You can answer that or you can address those topics however you like, whatever you'd like to share. And also, according to your Instagram story, you saw Iron Maiden play last night. So why don't you tell us about that as well? It was amazing. I have always wanted to see Iron Maiden. Um, my mom was a young mother. She had me when she was 14. So I grew up with really young parents. And, um, you know, that had some very cool things about it and some very challenging things about it. But one of the very cool things about it was I was raised with their very good taste in music. So I was quite literally raised by metalheads. And um, I can remember from a very early age seeing Iron Maiden posters and Metallica posters and Slayer posters like in my parents' bedroom. And um, at the time, because when I was little, I was very much so kind of a scaredy cat. I was really, really afraid of the Iron Maiden posters specifically. But I loved that music growing up. And um, so, you know, getting to see them, you know, decades later for my first time, finally at long last was really quite epic. And they put on such a spectacular show. You know, I've seen so many shows across like my lifetime because I love music, <laughs> but nothing like Iron Maiden. It was just like pyrotechnics and fireworks and costumes and just fire everywhere. It was awesome. So I'm still like basking in the glow of <laughs> seeing Iron Maiden last night. That sounds amazing. I can only imagine actually those posters, like if I was a small child having them on the wall while Iron Maiden rules, that sounds kind of terrifying. I remember being afraid of like weird paintings at my grandparents' house. So I can only imagine how I would have responded to an Iron Maiden poster at age <laughs> five or six. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially like, 
I, I mean, part of why, um, you know, I, I, I'm trying not to use the term like scaredy cat anymore, even though I was a very timid child. I was a highly sensitive kiddo. And um, that's to do with, you know, being psychic. And um, so, of course, it makes sense to me now. I'm like, oh, yeah, I was like scared of that because I was little, but also because I was experiencing some really intense things that, you know, the grownups around me weren't experiencing. And so, you know, seeing a depiction of, you know, things that exist in the spirit world in my parents' bedroom was just like, oh my goodness, there's the boogeyman that I sense and feel everywhere, but there it is right there on the wall. (laughs) So yeah, (laughs) it was a little bit scary when I was growing up, but I love Eddie now. So it's all good. Yeah, that's a good point. I wonder if those po- those like weird paintings at my grandparents' house that I was afraid of, like I probably was just picking up on the fact that they were haunted as fuck. And yeah. <laughs> as, as another sensitive child, so. Yeah. So tell us about your background and your spiritual journey. You talked about being a psychic child, what that looked like for you and kind of how you were, how you got started, or it sounds like we're maybe thrown into this journey working with the spirit world. Yeah. So when I was little, I was a very uh, quiet child and highly unusual. Uh, You can, everybody has always asked my mother ever since I can remember, like I can clearly remember being in preschool and kindergarten, them asking my mom, you know, like, why does Megan dress the way she does? And what I mean by that is I have always worn like black head to toe and my mother let me dress myself. And uh, my parents didn't dress that way, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, But, you know, I always had this um, really strong interest in all things eighth house. So everything esoteric, everything occult, Um, everything death culture related, spiritual, all things like that. And so, um, you know, I was quiet and I was really into that stuff. Like my heroes were Elvira and Wednesday and Morticia Adams and things like that. And so I was kind of an odd kid and uh, very shy and timid. And I think a lot of that had to do with experiencing so much stuff psychically and also you know, growing up with the particular challenges of having really young parents and um, growing up in a family that has, you know, a lot of intergenerational trauma and things like that. But um, so I was a psychic kid and I I had trouble making friends like, (laughs) goodness, probably like until I hit like high school, I think. And I always had like one or two really close friends that like got me or understood me but anytime I would like open up to other kiddos like I remember being in Girl Scouts and getting to go to one of the slumber parties and being really excited to go but then when I divulged about um because we're playing like truth or dare and then when I like told the truth about my lived experiences you know I scared the pants off of those girls um because I was talking to them about you know how I could connect with the spirit world And that was the last time I was invited to another like Girl Scout thing. And I ended up leaving the Girl Scouts, you know, shortly thereafter. And, uh, you know, not too long after that, I started to really um, physically present myself the way I am on the inside, you know, which is 
I, I, you know, for lack of better terms, I guess I started to appear more goth, more punk rock and things like that. Um, I think right around the age of like 12. And that's also when I started uh, reading tarot. Uh, before that, I had just kind of like intuitively practiced magic without any guidance, any books, any anything just on my own as a kid. Like I remember doing, you know, things like walking around the backyard and picking different leaves and flowers and putting them in a pot and just saying that this is what the spell is and just doing my little magical rituals as a kid. Uh, but when I was 12, uh, we went on a field trip to Washington, D.C. And I had, you know, a very little amount of souvenir money because I grew up um, fairly poor because my mom at that time, she was a single mom. And so, you know, everybody else had all this souvenir money and they're buying all this like Americana stuff, you know, things that had to do with American history because we're in Washington, D.C. And with what very little money I had, I was like, I know exactly what I'm getting. And I got two things. I got um, the Rider Waite tarot deck and I got the uh, Anton LaVey's uh, Satanic Bible. <laughs> oh, my God. I love 12 year old you or how old did you say you were was this when you were still around 12 or is it a little later yeah no I was I was 12 okay that's what I thought I was like damn if only the internet had been like such a thing then at least in my life it wasn't because I mean right we were like the last people I knew to get a computer by far and yeah I was like the 12 I was totally like the six-year-old having the seances at the uh at the fucking sleepover parties and like all of the you catholic raised girls were like you're going to hell <laughs> yeah yeah yep. if only we had the internet because I'm like now we know of course because of things like Instagram and Facebook groups and whatnot it's like oh okay like I'm not alone there's actually quite a lot of us and that's really cool but yeah you know back in the 90s and early 2000s it was like oh I'm the only kid in school like this you know so Oh my God. I love it so much. It's, you know, it's, I think it's really important to, I mean, I don't have kids, but so I really like, who am I to say, but I feel like it's so important to give kids space to express themselves and to explore these, you know, what at the time was very fringe. I mean, it was my, it was my, my parents were like very overprotective in certain ways. But then at the same time, I can't deny the fact that my first ever book on witchcraft that I personally owned that wasn't like borrowed from the library or a friend was purchased for me by my mother. So wow. It was like, do you, do you know that book Teen Witch by Silver Yes, Rainbow? Yes. <laughs> that was my that was oh my, my first witch book too. It was the only only witch book in the entire library. And it was in the like young adult section. And I just kept checking it out like on repeat and making sure that nobody else got it because I love that <laughs> book so much. Do you remember the classic <laughs> cover? Like the girl, she had like a crop top with like a yin yang yes. on it and like a chin yes. belt. Unfortunately, yes. the, the, I, think I saw the new cover recently. This is like such a tangent, but I don't care. I saw the mm -hmm. new cover recently in a bookstore and I was like, it's like actually updated now and it's not Aww. like, you know, I think that book came out what like 2000 and I was like, that was such a time capsule. I wish I still had it. Even though that book actually didn't resonate with me so much itself. Cause it's a book on Wicca. I was like, Oh yeah. I was like, 
oh, Wicca is just a religion. Damn it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no offense yeah. to my Wiccans who are listening. It's just, you know, it wasn't what I was looking for at the time. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. It, I, that's a total bummer that it's not all like awesomely 90s looking and like, like they were basically could have been characters out of the craft. I love oh, that cover. <laughs> so good. So good. So, okay, so as spiritual, I touched on this a bit in the intro, but as spiritual information becomes in many ways, although not always, in many ways more accessible through the internet, you know, it's just like we just talked about when we were young, there was not, well, I don't know, I mean, it sounds like we're about the same age, I'm 34, but there was not, you know, it was not the way it is now. So in many ways, that can be a beautiful thing, that accessibility, that ability to realize you're not alone, that ability to get information on topics that were previously and still are very fringe, depending on the circles you run in, although that's easy for me to forget as an openly practicing witch. But with that, in, in some ways, increase in accessibility, it's hard to deny that we lose depth of knowledge as more and more practices to take it out of context. And God, there are just so many daily examples of this. And, you know, as this happens, origins of practices in the full picture gets lost. And that's really like the best case scenario. The worst case scenario are examples that we are all familiar with of blatant cultural appropriation around certain practices. So I'd like to get into this conversation. And and I, you know, let's start with something that is probably like the gateway practice for so many people in terms of what I'll call just loosely contemporary, you know, contemporary eclectic spirituality, for better or worse. I have my thoughts on like the whole eclectic spirituality thing. I'm going to set those aside for the moment. But in your in in actually one of your videos, the series that I talked about 10 things non Native American folks need to hear, you talked about smudging, which is a very specific Um, Native American practice. And it's a word that has now been used by everybody as just like burning sage. This is what we do. So, you know, whether you want to focus on this example or others, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the, on, on what gets lost, both socially, both in terms of tradition and both in terms of the voices of the people who have actually, who practice these, these practices as part of their heritage what gets lost when these bits and pieces of sacred practices get taken out of context in you know, on, on the internet? Yeah, you know, we live in a very consumerist uh, society because we live under capitalism. And so, you know, it's very deeply ingrained into all of us. It's socialized that we consume things and that we're entitled to things. And the more privilege you have, the more one is apt to feel that way. And so, you know, like you were saying, the internet is wonderful because we have access to all kinds of things. And I look at it as a privilege. Like we have a privilege to access all of these things and we must be responsible with that. And so, you know, I think that it's very easy for folks with privilege who don't have to, necessarily see um, that some things are meant to be sacred or protected or that aren't necessarily just for the taking that it would make the internet appear as though as it's just kind of like a free-for-all you know and it's um, just because it's all there doesn't mean it's all there 
you know, for you specifically. Um, and it, you know, should be treated with the same respect um, as you would in person or, you know, perhaps even more respect than you have treated it with, it with in, in person. Uh, you know, it's, I think you're right about internet um, culture definitely feeding that eclectic spirituality thing, um, which is kind of a, um, like a tricky thing. People ask me about it all the time. And specifically Sage is like the biggest one. Uh, you would not believe how much pushback I get about Sage and people love you know, their fucking the, sage and it's fucking, they it's, love their fucking sage. it's white sage is endangered now right yeah it is and you know and even if it wasn't so because that's the other thing is like i've had i've had folks like you know send me articles of actually it's not endangered now um and i'm like okay cool so even if it's not it's like number one i like you know, told you that I didn't say you couldn't burn sage. I said <laughs> that you don't get to smudge. You don't get to call it smudging. You don't get to make smudge bundles. You don't get to, um, you know, monetize and profit off of a sacred practice that is not yours. And that, you know, that's a boundary line that is for indigenous folks to draw and that we are the authorities on that because it's our culture and our heritage and that that's the point and so you know I get all kinds of stuff like oh well so many cultures have used sage throughout history and I'm like cool and you still can but you cannot you know do the things that I just asked you not to do and so you know they just kind of get stuck on you know whatever it is um that's causing their fragility to be activated um but yeah, it's it's super frustrating. I just saw uh, somebody in my uh, group on Facebook the other day uh, shared an article. I think it was actually yesterday, and it was of a very uh, popular Halloween store. That's like a corporate box store chain, and uh, they have this year uh, bundles of spooky black sage and it looks like a bundle of white sage that they've like spray painted black or something gross like that wow and yeah and when I just I mean even speaking about it right now <laughs> um it just like hits me somewhere like in my chest that like hurts because it's like that's exactly why we are so protective is because like when we're this is what we're up against, you know, it's like that is beyond desecration at that point, you know, to me, that's like basically defiling a sacred tool and a sacred practice and making a mockery of it and doing it for profit in a store that's on stolen land and being, you know, sold to folks who, you know, whose ancestors definitely participated in mass genocide. So it's a very like, it's more than can you or can you not use sage? And that's what I'm trying to get people to be aware of is to take off their, you know, their default lens and put on the lens um, that indigenous folks carry because it's so much more than just a plant, <laughs> you know? Truly. You, you just brought up such a beautiful distinction that I want to just like make as a mic drop, drop moment, <laughs> which is that, you know, a lot. Okay. So when, when cultural appropriation comes up in conversation, obviously it's not just about spirituality, it's about many topics. 
a lot of people get very defensive. And that's an example of fragility, often white fragility, or usually white fragility coming out to play. And, you know, it really does, like you said, come from this privilege of just like assuming and just being used to having access to everything. I mean, I love what you said about how the access to these practices is a privilege and that, you know, we need to view it as such because I mean, I absolutely have been complicit in this in the past and, you know, not in the past years, I'm sure I, you know, well, I I definitely burn plenty of fucking sage. And I think what you brought up about how it's not that you can't burn it, but it's just educating yourself on how, you know, and you talked about this actually in the video, how, you can burn sage, you can burn whatever the fuck you want. Although, of course, the endangered plant thing is, you know, a separate and related issue. However, are you referring to it as what is truly a sacred practice? Are you talking about smudging? Like you said, profiting off of making smudge sticks, you know, or these other products rather than, you know, going to a native creator, an artisan of these products, you know, of course, whether or not they should be purchased is like a separate issue. But I think it's important for those of us who have access to this privilege to really educate ourselves. And, you know, for me, that was like kind of the gateway of learning more about this was that learning about how these plants are endangered. I mean, Palo Santo, I just read there are 250 mature Palo Santo trees left in the world. And yet these are mass produced products. And it's like, why not go to your own culture for, especially when it comes to burning plant matter, which yes, every culture that I know of in the world has some practice of burning plant matter for purification, but going to your own culture and really identifying what people from your heritage used for you know, spiritual cleansing and educating yourself on those practices. You know, it's my belief that those hold more resonance because we're really tapping into the knowledge of our own ancestors rather than the ancestors of others. Hell yeah. (laughs) I, I, yes, exactly that. It's, it works better when you are doing something of your ancestry. And I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's like, I really want folks to ask themselves, you know, what is it in you that really wants to, Um, access, you know, my spiritual practices or, you know, that of a culture that is not your own and whether or not it's coming from a romanticized idea of what it means to be native uh, because it is, you know, like, sorry, sorry, you know, (laughs) folks have this very one-sided view of what it means to be native. You know, I always say that everybody you know, loves me as an indigenous person um, when I'm, you know, talking about spirituality, when I'm talking about nature and spirit and things like that. But then when I'm doing other indigenous type shit, like talking about um, standing rock and, you know, voter suppression and, um, you know, the missing and murdered women and indigenous girls and transgender folks, like, all of a sudden it's like radio silence. Like nobody wants to touch any of those things with a stick, but you know, if I'm going to share something from like a powwow, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, my culture is like so beautiful. But I'm like, but this is it too. And so you can't like pick apart, you know, what parts of my culture 
um, you are honoring or celebrating, you know, because it's like, do you really like it's asking your spirit, like, do you really want to um, consume or um, use this native spirituality? Because with that comes so much more than you think it does. Like, yes, it comes with sage. And yes, it comes with uh, the uh, doing sweat lodge and things like that. And all of those wonderful practices, peyote and peace pipes and such like that. Um, And it also comes with a lot of intergenerational trauma. It comes with a lot of pain. And it also comes with living under active genocide. (laughs) And that's something that you can't, no matter how much you try to learn about it, understand it and logically like wrap your head around it, you will never know what it's like to carry that in your body. And so you can never fully live in the spiritual experience of a native person. And it's just like, so why not instead like honor it by being a good ancestor yourself and learning about your stuff and figuring out, you know, if you do want to celebrate us and what we do because it's so wonderful, like how can you as a living ancestor from your lineage, um, what can you do to honor us today, like right here and right now? You know what I mean? Instead of just, <laughs> oh, I'd really like to, you know, buy a pair of moccasins or like whatever it is because it looks cute. <laughs> oh, hey, man, I'm like sending you all the applause emojis right now. <laughs> I mean, you know, this really comes to this idea that, I mean, it's, it's the responsibility of all of us, not just white folks, although let's be real, white folks get the most airtime in the media. And so they tend to be the most egregious in their usage of these other practices. But it's the responsibility of all of us, because I see this happening from people of many different backgrounds, you know, this lack of understanding, or just this, honestly, I, I really do believe it's generally just a lack of even recognizing the importance of educating ourselves on the practices, on, on, on all spiritual practices. And, you know, so when, we, when we're called to try something, as you talked about about the beginning, you know, it's like we just assume everything's for us because that's the way that things are presented to us under capitalism. But it's up to us to research it and to learn more and to, you know, this is really the center point of discussions on cultural appropriation, how it's not saying, you know, generally these conversations are not saying do this, don't do this. Although sometimes justifiably they are (laughs) because there are some things like just don't fucking do them white people. (laughs) But the reality is this, it's about, you know, are you profiting not just in terms of money, but in terms of creating space or, you know, of of being a voice in a conversation that honestly you don't belong in. It's about, like you said, being a good ancestor yourself and recognizing that there's no need to borrow quote unquote from other traditions um, when, when you could actually be accessing those of your own. And ultimately if you do truly you know, and this is my opinion, I'd love to hear yours. But I feel like if you, if you do truly when it comes to like, deity worship, and things like this, it, I understand that it can become a trickier line, because it's like, telling someone what to believe is different from telling someone what to buy. 
But there's a difference between believing something and practicing it privately and, you know, writing a book about it and being a white voice in an area of practice that is not traditionally of your background. So, so Megan, do you feel like, like, where do you feel is, I don't even want to say the line because I really don't think it's that hard to realize what's like ethical and what's not, but we'll call it a line. Where do you see the line between belief and genuine desire to practice something spiritually and causing harm through your presence in, in the practice? Yeah, you know, and it's just like you said, like, it, it would appear as though is it's not difficult to see where the, where the line is, but I am surprised every day <laughs> at how apparently it, maybe it's easy for you and I to see where that line is. But I am just constantly beside myself w- with the people like just out in the world. I'm like, you really didn't know that that was a line? Like, come on, you know? Um, and so one of the things that can help you see where that line is, uh, because when I see folks who are uh, having pushback or trying to engage me in a conversation about, you know, and they're always like in their white fragility um, and probably also starting to fragment. They are very upset because I've just asserted a boundary or, um, you know, had a command in my power as um, an indigenous ancestor um, and used my voice in that way. And it's like, okay, I need you to see what I see psychically. And what I see is that your inner so you have you know colonizer ancestors that lives within you that lives within your dna and so it is natural and you know normalized for that behavior to come up out through you and it's going to happen your entire life no matter how much work you do and that's just the work just like i have my work for the rest of my life too it is unending. And uh, one of the ways that it comes up is in wanting to take or consume or borrow or, you know, whatever it is and defend your right to have something that's not yours. Like that is colonization. And it's like, leave it alone, you know? And plus, like, if you have to, because I know for some reason, I like white folks are, um, you know, much easier at having compassion for animals for <laughs> some, <laughs> some bizarre reason. Um, I'm like, if you have to think of us like, you know, we are endangered because we are, um, quite frankly, like we are, you know, murdered at higher rates and all kinds of other horrific things. Like my people are endangered. If you have to look at us like that and, know that, you know, our environments need to be protected, our resources need to be protected, everything about us needs to be protected, our physical bodies, our languages, our um, cultural practices, everything. Like we literally have languages going extinct. I just saw the other day a tribal elder passed and he was the last um, person, you know, that was speaking a language, that language is now dead. 
And, you know, meanwhile, there's like you were saying all of these other like, you know, white authors or people that went and trained to become shaman, like holding these workshops, like teaching culture that's not theirs to to be shared. And they're just taking up space that we could be taking up, you know. And so it's kind of like instead of being a voice for us, you know, like just pass us the mic or, you know, what's wrong with um, loving something and honoring something without needing to take it, you know, Uh, it's kind of like when you go into uh, a national forest or a state park and it says, you know, you know, leave no trace and and take nothing. Um, We kind of want the same thing, you know, because we're out here trying to survive. And so these arguments about, little stuff like sage um, are so important. And at the same time, like can be very frustrating too, because that's, what's getting all the like Buzzfeed articles, you know, that's, what's getting all the um, social media, like all the reach and whatnot. And meanwhile, like things like the missing and murdered indigenous women and things of that nature, like there are entire reservations that have not had water for over 20 years (laughs) and that's in this country and like folks don't know about that and so you know if you want to know where the line is it's are you causing harm and if you are asking yourself the answer is probably yes (laughs) absolutely you know and it's I see how that can be frustrating because it's kind of like when it when it's these smaller issues that are of course indications of larger issues, it's like just just stop, you know. I mean, and here's the thing: I it's a practice and it's a process. And you know, I, one of the things I really appreciate about your work is that you're very open about how this is a process of educating yourself. And you know, I mean, there's there's so many different ways to you know there's so many areas that we can do better. And it's really up to us to listen and to be open to hearing about those areas when we confront them. Like I said, I've absolutely been complicit and, you know, just out of ignorance, I'm, I'm, I'm sure talked about things and done things that were not mine to talk about or do. And it's a process of educating ourselves, but as well as, as listening, you know, this is not, as you said, in, in one of your, of your recent podcast episodes, cultural appropriation is not a discussion. You know, it it really, I do believe we have to question why it matters to us so much. You know, I mean, yeah, I love to dry herbs and make bundles for burning for spiritual purposes. And, you know, I I prefer to use, you know, either herbs that I can grow or that I can collect in my local market that are, you know, things I've chosen intuitively. And it's, you know, no one's saying like, stop, creating, stop believing, stop, you know, connecting. It's about, you know, stop purchasing through, you know, these, these, like you said, the Halloween store (laughs) selling these, you know, like what I would call unauthorized, (laughs) you know, practices, essentially stop, like you said, taking up space in the conversation, stop requesting that everything is yours. And also just being willing to be better to recognize that you're not perfect. And in thinking about this, actually, I recognize that there's, I believe, a need to backtrack a little bit and talk about the concept of white fragility, because some people listening may not have heard that expression before. Would I would love to hear 
your own definition of what that is and what that looks like and, and how you see that playing out in people you interact with? Ooh, all day, every day. <laughs> um, you know, uh, a lot of my life exists on the internet um, because my work exists on the internet. And so I, uh, because I am an indigenous person and because I am black and also because I carry light skin privilege, you know, there's a lot of folks who like to follow me because I'm I, I appear more palatable until they actually get a hold of my work. And then they're like, holy moly, this isn't the type of Native American I wanted to follow. I wanted something mellow, you know? And it's like, <sighs> white fragility is all day, every day, something that I deal with. It's in my inbox. It's it's in my home. My husband is white. Um, my beloved best friend and my assistant is white. Um, and a lot of my friends, I live in... Uh, I live on Pomo territory and um, here in Sonoma County and it's also been colonized into wine country. So I am also ironically surrounded by lots of white folks and I live in an area where people look at me like I'm the foreigner, which uh, I'm sure you can imagine is very frustrating. And um so white fragility happens all the time and how it looks all kinds of ways, but what it mostly like where the base of its manifestation begins is when somebody is experiencing a break in integrity and they are either realizing it on their own or they have been called out or called in and they are defensive about it. And it's because there exists this indoctrinated um, white supremacy in, in all of us. And that's the other thing I need folks to like really understand is when I'm talking about white supremacy, I'm not necessarily like folks think about like, you know, the people wearing the white hooded sheets and whatnot. Like, yeah, those are white supremacists too. But I'm talking about like global white supremacy and the best analogy that I've seen is that, you know, it's not the shark, it's white supremacy is the water and we're all in that water. And so there are bits of internalized white supremacy, even within me, um, you know, as a person of color and we all carry that. And so whenever we are uh, brought you know, to new information about something that's, you know, important and it's intersectional and it's more progressive, more evolved than maybe something we were used to before, you can expect, um, you know, somewhere inside of you there to be a feeling of resistance or a feeling of pushback, a feeling of betrayal, anger, uh, you know, guilt, um, shame, denial, any of that stuff, you know, because we are so focused on, but I have good intentions and I'm a good person, but that is, you know, a facet of white supremacy too. It's that white exceptionalism. And so really, really, you know, when white from fragility shows up, it's like, somebody saying like, Hey, just so you know, like, this isn't okay. Or telling you, hey, stop that. That's not okay. And you're like, oh, but I didn't mean to hurt you. 
you know, or, but, you know, I think I was an indigenous person in my last life. So, you know, (laughs) you know, stuff like that. And, um, and then when I continue to divulge to them, you know, how and why that's not okay and try to help them, you know, like process through it, which is totally not my job, but sometimes I do it anyway. Uh, You know, when I met with the vitriol and the pushback, that's white fragility and it escalates and you can always feel somebody getting like angrier and angrier and they start shutting down. And then what happens is they fragment. And once they fragment, it's like, good luck. And usually that's the point where I say like, you know, I can't process this with you. You've got to, you know, take it upon yourself to do your work. And that means hiring an anti-racist educator or coach to work with you. Um, because, you know, I, we were at a point where like my labor is you're, it's, you're saturated. (laughs) Well, right. I mean, it's, it's not, and that's, I think a really important piece of it, that it's not the job of anyone but ourselves to educate ourselves. And it's certainly not the job of people who are honestly being gracious enough to bring to you what you actually talked about in the first episode of your podcast. You said something about, you know, how you coming to someone like in their inbox or whatever, their DMs and saying like, Hey, just so you know, this isn't really like a chill thing to say or whatever, you know, that's actually a gracious thing to do. You could walk, as you said in the podcast, you could let them walk around with shit on their face and not do anything at all. (laughs) And, you know, I've definitely, you know, encountered this with my you know, responses to DMs asking for me, asking if I want to join someone's tribe and just being like, well, so here's the thing about that. This is why this is not really an appropriate thing to say. Usually it's met with silence or, you know, some kind of bypassy, well, you know, it's not, I, I'm, I thank you for letting me know, but I can't, re- I can't react or I can't um, take responsibility for how other people view my words, I know the intention behind them, which is just like, kind of like a nice spiritual bypassy way of shutting down. And I think it's important for us, especially those of us higher up on the privilege scale to recognize that it's our job to educate ourselves. And to if someone's taken the time to actually come to us and say like, hey, this is why this is a problem, to actually listen to it and assume that they have your best interests at heart, that they actually care about you and your work enough to like, not let you walk around and keep saying this thing, you know, rather than just basically giving up a really beautiful opportunity for us to grow, especially as influencers in the digital space. Right. Yeah, you know, it's it's an offering and it's a gift. And I would love for folks to um, that are open to doing their work, that are ready to start doing that work, to also embrace that it doesn't have to be uh, delivered with a, you know, a pink bow on it. It doesn't have to smell nice, feel good. Um, sometimes that gift, that offering of like, hey, this is not okay um, comes from a place of fire and that you just need to accept that because that's just what it is. And, um, that's real, it's valid. And that's our, you know, when that comes through out of me, I'm like, Oh, that's, that's my ancestors. And, you know, a lot of folks have a really hard time with that with me. And, but I'm like, but you're welcome because 
you know, fire is a cleansing element and not everything in the world needs to be palatable. And I certainly don't need to be palatable to folks and neither do the other people of color out there that, you know, white folks are um, engaging with. So if you are met with somebody's anger, it is your job to still get real humble and get yourself to be in a place where it's like, oh, thank you. And imagine where that anger is coming from, you know, like what it would take for it to be that passionate. Why is it that dire and figure it out so you can understand it? Absolutely. You know, coming at it from a place of, of empathy and also empathy is like a very shallow word here. I mean, just a place of just really, it's about listening. You know, it's, it's, I, I want other people to hear that it, all you, all you're being asked to do is listen and to educate yourself and to be better. Nobody's asking you to be perfect. Nobody's expecting you to be perfect, but we are all, we all have the responsibility to be better, especially as our influence grows. And, you know, this can take place in your everyday life. This can take place in your life online. You know, this, this takes place regardless of the size of, you know, your following or whatever your community, whatever it is. It's our responsibility to listen, to be grateful that you know, someone has brought this to our attention because it's absolutely not their responsibility, and to identify ways that we can do better in the future and recognize that while we aren't being asked to be perfect and to know everything, we are being asked to listen and to improve as we are presented with the resources we need to do so. And one thing you've talked about, Megan, a lot is what you call performative and optical allyship. So this relates to a lot of things we've been talking about, about when people, you know, and let's focus on the online space just because that's kind of where people get heard the most, where they act like they are allies to an oppressed group and they don't really back that up with deep action. And if you'd be willing to share with us today some examples of what performative or optical allyship looks like, as opposed to real deep allyship, where that difference lies and how we can shift into the latter so that we create real change from our place of privilege, rather than just, you know, this performative change so that we can feel better about ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's something I think about a lot. Um, And performative, you know, (laughs) performative activism is like a tricky, um, a tricky thing to speak about, because we have to be I have to be careful. Um, Folks have to be careful because I hear things all the time. And I see memes all the time. And it like, kind of devastates me a little bit when I see it. But it's that meme that goes around that's like, like actually get off your butt and go do something. And I'm like, Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like some of us are disabled and some of us are, you know, doing our activism in the best way we can. And that's all I can really like ask of folks, you know, like if you can't make it out to uh, protest, I get it. Like I can't either sometimes, Um, you know, if you are unable to do certain things, like I get it. Um, so, you know, in terms of activism, that's that, but then, 
you know, optical allyship is even, um, I feel like more folks are, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, guilty of perpetuating. And especially because it's so easy to appear a certain way on the internet, you know, um, and what we say and what we do are, can be completely different things. So the thing about being a really good ally is I actually have been starting to say, like, I don't really need allies. Uh, <laughs> I need accomplices. And um, that's because things are really dire. And, you know, if we were existing in a perfect world that didn't feel like a dystopian nightmare <laughs> at times, <laughs> then, 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 then allyship would be cool. But because things are so dire and because people are losing their lives um, and we are losing, you know, pieces of our planet that we are never going to get back, <laughs> et cetera, and so forth, um, like, I need accomplices. And so... Um, that calls people to do uh, two things that I think aren't really getting talked about. Um, one of those things is uh, interrogating your ability to uh, find humility within your process and not in the comfortable way. Humility, I mean like humiliation is part of the process um, because it is for everybody, not just white folks. Like anytime... I find any internalized um, settler colonialism or misogyny or whatever, it's humiliating. It's totally humiliating. Like I can think of ways that I've been complicit and it sucks, you know, especially given like knowing like what I, who I really am and what I, how I live my life these days. I'm like, man, I can't believe I was complicit in this type of behavior before it's humiliation. And so that's like the remedy to white fragility, because when white fragility comes up, you're defending um, your ego, and you're also uh, not willing to give up your power. And so somebody that's a good ally is willing to, you know, set aside your ego, step outside of your experience, and put somebody else first, and uh, be willing to be humiliated and um, to really explore what humility is like. So on a practical level, what that looks like on the internet is, you know, like, so if you are an able-bodied person that just loves to share anti-racist memes, and that's the, you know, extent of your anti-racism work as a white person, uh, I think it's safe to say that we both know you could be doing more and you could be doing better. Um, if you are, you know, engaging in these like internet comment battles, but when it comes time to, you know, the family dinner table, you can't tell your husband to stop using the N word or stop, you know, referring to, women as females and, and things like that, um, then you're part of the problem. And so it's just about, you know, if you want to avoid optical allyship, it's continuing to interrogate yourself and ask, where am I still part of the problem? Because Rachel Cargill says it the best. She says, we are 
always doing one of two things. We are either upholding or dismantling white supremacy at all times. And so, you know, if you're unsure of what you need to be doing, check in with that. Am I upholding white supremacy right now or am I dismantling it? (laughs) Um, And so, you know, just really walking the walk and knowing that the walk is like spirituality isn't supposed to be cozy, comfortable and, you know, sunshine and butterflies and puppies. Like it's crying, it's pain, it's release, it's healing, it's ugly, it's purging, it's nasty, (laughs) it's loss. Um, I can always tell when I've got an accomplice on my hands, um, when they're somebody of privilege who is putting their power and their resources on the line um, for the sake of others, if they're redistributing their resources, if they're putting their body on the line, Um, I know that's a true accomplice, you know, Um, but at the end of the day, it's like an optical ally. It's like, you might as well not really necessarily be doing anything. Like if you're lucky, you know, maybe somebody is seeing one of your memes and it's shifting something. Um, But unless you're really like walking that talk, which, you know, means confronting it every single time it comes up, not when you're comfortable, <laughs> um, not when you have the time. I, that's the other thing I hear is like, oh, I, you know, I've just been so busy. And like, well, what do you think about do oppressed people have time for this? Hell no, we're exhausted. And yet we have to deal with it all day long anyways. So, um, you know, that's just kind of a bit of what I think about optical allyship. I don't know if that was kind of what you were asking me or not but that's (laughs) what came out I was getting chills as you were saying what you said because you know and and this is something that has gotten to the point where it's it seems obvious but by from from people's actions it's clear that it's not obvious which is that you know are living out the ideals of white supremacy for back of a lack of a better way of putting it is is rarely the obvious things, you know, it's deeper. And, you know, there's so many layers to our privilege that we need to peel back and be willing to peel back and be willing to listen on. And, you know, asking, it's our responsibility to ask ourselves constantly, you know, where we have been complicit, where we still are complicit, you know, questioning everything, especially the things that you yourself are embodying and living out, because it's those things that are, you know, the less obvious and as a result, the most more egregious, you know, I relatively recently had an experience with my partner and, you know, I, I live in Mexico and I have a, I have a, just an extraordinary amount of privilege here as a Caucasian, fair skinned, blonde, blue eyed woman. And that's a privilege that he absolutely does not have. And we were talking about, I don't remember how it came up and he called me out and he said, you know, I feel like sometimes you don't take like certain traditions and things about my culture seriously. And that, I mean, talk about the humiliation you're experiencing. I was absolutely humiliated because consciously, of course, I don't feel that way. I've chosen this country, which is another set of privilege that I have that privilege to be able to leave my home country and live in another. But, you know, and I'll be completely honest at first, my response was like that humiliation and that like, no, that's not true. But you know, the reality is this, 
while I may not feel that way consciously or even subconsciously, like you said, I have white settler DNA running through my body. And to think that that doesn't play into my perspective on the world and to maybe my sense of humor or something like that is just ignorant. You know, it's just ignorant to think that just because I believe something with my heart doesn't mean I act out the social conditioning on other levels, especially in an environment where I am extremely privileged is foolish. And so it's really our responsibility to be constantly peeling back these layers and be willing to be wrong and be willing to be humiliated and be forced to confront these vestiges, which are truly not vestiges (laughs) so much as we, as we wish they were, but these aspects of our socialization of our identity that you know while we may not have been have asked to to receive or we may not have you know we may not feel like we have been the benefactors of the reality is this they do play out into our social experience and it's up to us to pull them back one by one and i really appreciate that you acknowledged how you know all of us are complicit not just white folks, but at the same time, I do believe that it's the responsibility of those with the most privilege to do the most. And, you know, in one of your videos, you talked about how the importance of like, maybe not even being the body on the line when it's not your place. And you talked about some specific, you know, times where actually white protesters weren't the extra person to help. They were, you know, weighing on a a resistance that didn't have resources when in reality money would have been a better a better thing to provide or whatever the resources you know that those people had were and so i've rambled on a bit my point here that i i am going to lead into a question on <laughs> my point here is what are your thoughts on you know, we talked about performative and optical allyship versus true allyship or what you call being a real compl- a real accomplice. What are your thoughts on the place of the sort of like sexier side of resistance, you know, the like going to the protests and putting pictures on your Instagram and all that bullshit and like the real needs which sometimes are quite as quite simple in terms of money, in terms of access to medical care, if you're in a place where you can provide that, in terms of access to resources. What's your position on where resources need to be focused at different times? Well, I am an anarchist, like you mentioned. And so um, I actually think about this a lot because um, in anarchism, a lot of the emphasis is on mutual aid and direct action and redistribution of power and creating um, more of like horizontal power dynamics instead of vertical. And so just like keeping those things in mind, how that actually looks in real life is it's the simple things like you were saying money. Uh, you know, I know at Standing Rock that they really needed money and supplies and legal aid. And I think that they even still need some of those things for folks that are um, still imprisoned um, from that actual protest. And so, you know, 
folks have to be careful about their, uh, because of their settler DNA and um, that whole like white savior thing as an activist and uh, check in with yourself, you know, like what is my why and what is my why about this very specific type of action? And, you know, like, is it, am I doing what I want to do for these people or am I doing what these people want me to be doing for them? Because, that's what's really needed is what we need folks to do. Um, you know, so a lot of times it's money because we live in a capitalist world and, you know, marginalized folks have less resources and it's a very easy way to redistribute, uh, power is with your actual capital. Another way to do that is by redistributing, uh, social capital. You know, I've seen people, uh, with like really big followings, you know, hand over their Instagram to somebody else for an entire day and let them do an Instagram takeover um, because they have an important message to share about things like Mount Achaia and things like that. So, you know, check in with your inner white savior, check in with, you know, what is it, the people I'm actually trying to help, like, you wouldn't walk up to somebody that's in like a burning car and be like, oh, here's a bottle of water. You know what I mean? You would be like, <laughs> hopefully, not. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not, you know, um, you're gonna, like, actually make an assessment of the situation and, you know, hopefully get an idea of what they need and how you can help them. And it's the same, same type of thing. So um, direct resources, much in the same way that like, one of the things that um, I know a lot of houseless people struggle with, uh, women in particular, is having enough menstrual supplies. So, you know, a lot of folks struggle with like, what do I do in order to like, you know, be a better neighbor to the houseless folks in my community? And it's like, okay, well, number one, they need you to see them as people because houseless folks are people too, drug users are people too, sex workers are people too, et cetera, and so forth. And so it's like, why don't you take your surplus of menstrual supplies or your surplus of money and go buy some of that stuff and make like little kits and put them in a little bags. And then, you know, the next time you see um, a woman identifying a houseless person, like give them a menstrual kit and like you'd be surprised like they're probably very thankful for something like that um because I know that that's something they really struggle with and um like I've always just practiced just asking like what do you need what is the way I can be the most beneficial to you and what that does is that keeps our ego out of the equation the way that we want to help because often the way we want to help is really just kind of trying to serve us, which isn't necessarily going to serve the people that we're, you know, saying we want to serve. So that you know, is, things like that. that is <laughs> awesome advice, you know, because as we've brought up a few times, while it's not your job to educate others on how to be better allies or why to do and not do certain things, you know, I do agree a lot of people really struggle and they're like, what the fuck do I do? And, you know, I, I also identify as an anarchist and as a business owner. And I mean, like, that could be a whole other conversation we have. You know, I, I agree with you where it's like, there's this balance between like, our ideals and the, the society we live in. 
And a big motivator for me to make money is to spread those resources <laughs> because that's a, that's as someone with privilege, it's easier for me to make money than it is for many others too. And, you know, especially I find with a lot of radical leaning individuals, there's this like, there's so, they, they, they so often push away the money piece, forgetting that actually that's the very thing that people who are marginalized need the most. Because as you said, whether or not we agree with it, the current system is a capitalist system. And until it's not, you know, until it's not like acting as if you can't earn money or you don't have money that could actually really help others is actually doing harm to the very people you say you're trying to help. Exactly. 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 There was, um, I'm totally blanking right now, but there, somebody I had a conversation with recently, um, about, Oh, okay. It was when it was one of my reading clients and, uh, they had a mentor tell them that if they really wanted to help, others to not open a nonprofit and to instead create a for-profit business. And this was their mentor. And they were like floored by that person. They were like, why, why, like, like, why would you tell me to do that? And they were like, because we live in a capital society, you're going to be able to help more people that way. And that helped it click for them. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that I was nervous about like even sharing with people and I didn't share with people for a very long time that um, I very much so am a practicing anarchist. Um, And it was because I was like, Oh, people are going to be like, how can you be a business person and an anarchist at the same time? And um, (laughs) my answer to that is by being a good trickster. Yes. I love that. I identify that so much. (laughs) You know, Um, And just like being good at like knowing how to work and hustle the system in a way that is counter um, its abuse. And so like you were saying, like giving people of color money, please do that. Like every single black person you consume content from every single indigenous person you consume content from as much as you can. And I know that because we live in a capitalist society, a lot of folks are struggling financially. Um, However, I will tell you, if marginalized people can budget for each other, I especially expect, you know, our white allies and accomplices to budget for us, like budget for us, even if it's just, you know, like a dollar or whatever it is, like, just making that one simple action, if everybody did that, it would make a huge impact. And that's a narrative, like, we just got to, like, keep driving home, because that would really create a really big shift. Um, So, you know, that money piece is huge. The things we could do with money in the society is huge. You know, like, uh, one of the things that I plan on doing is growing white sage and selling it not so I can have a profit, um, I'm actually going to use all of the money that I get from the sage bundles that I'm going to make and send that money um, to the Lakota Nation. And um, I'm going to send it to Pine Ridge Reservation because they still don't have any fucking water, <laughs> you know, and those are those are my people. And um, so, you know, there are things we can do if you have social capital, use your social capital to help other people out. 
you know, just be smart about your resources and start thinking of ways you can redistribute them in a way that uh, the quote unquote man probably doesn't want you to, you know? Absolutely. I mean, and, and, and really just, you know, being aware of where your money's going, what kind of content you're, you're consuming, you know, as you said on, on one of your podcast episodes, you know, there are a lot of white women in this space. And by this space, I mean, like the contemporary spirituality, and I'm also going to tie in like the self development space as well, also a lot of white men. But you know, there are a lot of people, white people with a lot of money and power. And so one thing, one question you asked on, I think it was the first episode of your podcast, you said, you know, if you're only following white skinny witches, you need to fix that. (laughs) And you know, it's so easy just to be, especially if you're part of the group being represented, you know, um, you know, looking at your feed, it's, it's easy to kind of miss the fact that maybe all of those people look like you and all of those people may be from similar backgrounds to you. And, you know, sure, there's, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, but like, I really identify with this person's teachings. Great. I'm not, you know, I don't think anyone's saying to give that up necessarily, but look at the fact that there are lots of in every space amazing indigenous people of color who are practicing these same and I'm not just talking about like the spiritual practices we spoke on earlier but who are also you know life coaches and who are also fitness uh coaches and all these other people who are in in these areas that are dominated by quite frankly white women so it's really up to us to seek out those other people and to recognize that you know what in us is making us gravitate towards these people who look like us culturally? What in us is gravitating towards keeping these resources in these areas? And where can we be better consumers and also just better consumers of information by making it a priority, not just something that sounds nice on paper, but a priority to actually seek out people who look different than us, who are from different backgrounds of us and supporting their work as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, that's really important. And one of the other things that I would really like folks to do is to encourage themselves to seek out. So like, yes, um, you know, people of other walks of life, because that's something I practice too. Like, yeah, my feed is full of, um, you know, black folks and indigenous folks and all, you know, all kinds of people of color, et cetera, and so forth and queer folks and whatnot. But I also try to make sure that like, I'm hearing other people's perspectives that are not of my own because like, I don't want to be ignorant of, you know, somebody else's life experience because they're part of our community too. And um, especially if their, their voice is not the dominant voice. I, their voice doesn't need to get drowned out by all of the, you know, mainstream narratives out there. And it will, if we don't elevate them and if we don't support them. And um, if I could underline one thing, it would be that in doing so, uh, especially, you know, folks who, you know, might want to like come and find me and start following me, like do so e- maybe even especially when I'm pissing you off, <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, like don't just follow us when we're comfortable for you, when it's palatable, you know, when you think we're pretty or, 
you know, when we have an aesthetic or, you know, something that whatever, like, encourage yourself to step outside of your own experience and uh, see what it's like to embrace something that is not your own without wanting to take it, borrow it, steal it, you know, consume it, etc. And instead, um, one thing that I've also been asking folks is to give more than you take, you know, because that's counter capitalism, that's counter white supremacy. So if you are going to, you know, then go follow a bunch of people of color, a bunch of, you know, fat women, trans folks, etc., um, do so with the absolute direct intent that you are going to give more than you take. Because that's important too, is, you know, we don't need that optical allyship. We don't necessarily need, you know, large numbers of followers that aren't actually supporting our work. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's just good business, business advice for anybody. You know, the large numbers mean nothing if you're not making money. And yeah. it's especially important when you're part of a group that is already marginalized in terms of making money. And, yeah. you know, I mean, the way I do this in a practical way for anyone listening, if you're like, oh, because here's the thing. We always talk about the fucking algorithm and people like to complain about it, which is like a whole thing that annoys the shit out of me. But that's neither here nor there. Your algorithm really works because if you're following, you know, say you're following all these white women, you're going to continue to see that. So at first, it may feel like you need to really seek people out. And so it can be as simple as, you know, going and following Megan Alexandria and looking for resources of people who they follow and, you know, the work that they are sharing and, and, and kind of recreating your web to become one that is more inclusive, that is more intersectional, that so that your algorithm is no longer reflecting people who look and seem just like you, but instead people with a variety of perspectives that, like you said, may make you uncomfortable. And that is really an indicator that that's an area where you need to listen and grow. Absolutely. And like, the counter to that is like, you know, if there are other uh, marginalized folks listening, one of the healing things that you can do is, you know, cleansing your feed of dominant faces and dominant uh, profiles and narratives and filling it back up with folks like folks like you folks like me, you know, Um, and I highly encourage um, all folks, white folks and people of color, to uh, check out the book Algorithms of Oppression. Because when people complain about the algorithm, it upsets me, but it doesn't upset me in the way I think it upsets a lot of folks. Um, because most people don't know, and I'm trying to help bring as much awareness to this as possible, is that the algorithm is inherently hella racist. <laughs> And so the um, the brown folks, black folks, you know, the queer and trans folks that you are following, um, we are fighting an algorithm that is set against us. And the numbers are staggering and our voices are being silenced. We're being censored. I just saw um, another uh, indigenous Mexican woman who... Um, her account was deleted off of Instagram, uh, I believe just yesterday or the day before. And she had probably upward of, you know, a hundred thousand followers and lots of content that she had created on there. And now everything's just gone, poof, cloud of smoke. And that happens every 
day. And, you know, I notice, um, and a lot of other folks will tell you the same thing, that the algorithm knows certain keywords and all of the things that we are talking about today in this podcast are of those keywords. And those posts get a lot less reach and a lot less exposure. And because, you know, it is also not of a dominant narrative, it's not, you know, going to get shared and, you know, saved, bookmarked, whatever, as much because it's not, you know, a funny picture of a cat or whatever. Um, So, you know, here we are doing all of this labor and this powerful work as living ancestors, and we are working against a very, very racist algorithm. So I can't recommend algorithms of oppression enough. Thank you for that resource. And I'll be including a link to that in the show notes as well. So I know we're getting, we're, 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 we're getting to be a long interview here. And I really, really thank you again for taking the time to speak with us. There's one more topic I'd like to, or one more question I'd like to ask you before we close up. And it's around a topic that lots of people have a lot of opinions about. And that topic is the law of attraction. Now, I... Before I lead into my question, I'm just going to provide a little background. So one thing that you spoke on is that the whole idea of you create your reality is actually such a small piece of the energetic puzzle. And it really misses the layers that many people have of you know, oppressed identity and the structural issues that get in the way of this idea of our creation of reality coming into practice. And I'm absolutely a believer in the law of attraction. And I am a even deeper believer in what you've just said, that these layers of oppression and structural issues really get in the way of us accessing what is honestly, in my opinion, a universal law, just like you've talked about, you know, these communities that are lacking access to clean water, you know, water is, and is a resource that we all should have equal access to. That's very real for all of us. And yet, because of these structural layers of, of um, these, these issues of structural, um, you know, oppression, of structural racism, of all of these, of all of these, like you said, layers of oppressed identity, they get in the way of us accessing this. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on what, where for you, you kind of draw the line. So it sounded, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounded like from your past speakings on this, that you do acknowledge the truth on some level of this, you know, you create your reality idea. And also you acknowledge that these other things get in the way. So for those listening who often bristle at that idea that, you know, reality is self-created, where do you draw the line between recognizing oppression and dismantling it and also acknowledging that, you know, there may be some truth to this energetic reality? I hope that that question is clear. I sort of created it on the fly. So let me know if it's a little unclear. No, it's totally perfect. And it's actually something that um, I'm getting ready to talk a lot more about because I'm creating a course around it. Um, You know, we were talking about how all of us um, are, none of us are exempt from causing harm. And 
from um, like we all are going to make mistakes and that I'm not exempt of that. And, you know, uh, earlier years in my career, I was big into the law of attraction and big into manifestation. It was probably every other word that came out of my mouth for a period of time. <laughs> and um, these days, I kind of just want to set it all on fire and burn it down to the ground because that's how I am. But uh, I, I do actually, you are totally intuitively picking up on um, that I do exist in an interesting nebulous space between all of these things um, for a few different reasons. And so I will say the plainest answer is I think the law of attraction um, as a like branded concept as as we know it currently um, is colonized uh, universal laws and uh, you know is very much so inundated with uh, capitalism and misogyny and white supremacy and all kinds of other really really icky terrible things and so if I could just like incinerate the secret and all of that stuff, like all of it, even Abraham Hicks, like, sorry, not sorry. Um, like if I could get rid of all of that stuff, I would because all of that has been um, channeled through these lenses that are causing harm and a lot of spiritual bypassing and unfortunately perpetuating a lot of um, like racism and geez, like all kinds of oppressive uh, spiritual bypassing and things like that within the spiritual community. And it's super toxic. So I would love for it to just be poof gone. But I do believe in universal laws. Um, what it, my intention is, is to go through uh I'm going to do like two different things where like I'm going to sit with the universal laws as I understand them as a living ancestor from an indigenous perspective. So I'm going to really like sit with my ancestors and ask them to be in conversation and hold space with me around those pieces of information that I have um, like in that way. And then I'm also going to do some research and look at all the things like historically since that trend began, you know, what were those messages? And I'm going to absolutely like be pointing out, you know, where the harm was, why it's harmful and et cetera and so forth, like completely decolonizing the whole thing because it's got to go. So Yes, we do have a hand, a heavy hand in, um, in our, in our, you know, uh, what I call our quantum field. Um, I am a very big fan of quantum physics. Uh, I used to be a science teacher for, um, high school kids with autism <laughs> and I love science. And so, um, you know, quantum physics is our friend. And I am also an indigenous person who understands and witnesses universal laws all the time. And I'm also an indigenous person and a black person that uh, understands and lives the experience of there being energies and power systems in play 
that are uh, beyond uh, simple things like thinking positive <laughs> or, you know, asking me to bypass my very valid um, despair or anger uh, because I don't want to attract more of that. Um, you know, all of those things are very much so uh, rooted in white supremacy. So I am like in the process of creating that content. And I actually don't know if it's going to result in me saying that, you know, we can hold space for some of these beliefs if we look at them through a different lens, or if it's just going to be saying like, nope, this is totally racist. <laughs> and um, like we do have some ability to uh, use our personal power and our free will and personal choice to influence things, because that is true. Like if that weren't true, I wouldn't be um, a hoodoo root worker. I wouldn't be lighting candles for myself and my clients all the time. I wouldn't be doing spell work. I know we can influence energy. However, you know, since white supremacy is the water that we're existing in, remember, like I said, it's not the shark, it's the water we're all living in. It's going to take so much more than, you know, all of us thinking positive. And I also think that because it's through a white supremacist lens, um, that is, of course, going to inherently like coddle itself, that it really um, overemphasizes that positivity piece in a way that's extremely toxic, and um, makes it to where we would never be able to effectively overturn things that are harming people and places and the planet and whatnot um, just from sheer positivity alone. And uh, so, you know, I also know that as an astrologer, I can look at somebody's chart and like, yeah, we have freedom will of will and like personal choice. And there's also planetary influences. There's a lot of energies going on out there and the law of attraction just is completely remiss in acknowledging any of that because it has an agenda. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, that was such a beautiful way to, to describe this intersection. And, it, and honestly, it's, in my opinion, hasn't, it's become not so different from organized religion where, sure, we can look at the original you know, tenets and the original ideas and how they play out in the world and, and identify them as, a play, as coming from a place of empowerment and love. However, on top of that are these layers of interpretation by people who are already empowered, already exhibit privilege, just in the same way that the Christian Bible has been interpreted, you know, over now, obviously much, much longer period of time than the law of attraction, but we're really seeing the same results. And it's up to us as spiritual practitioners to identify what is, you know, what we are calling universal law and what is an interpretation from a person who has a, a really large amount of privilege in the social sphere. Absolutely. Because those folks, like all everybody in those, you know, the secret videos, um, they have a large amount of privilege and their aim, you know, with all of those things is very American. Um, and even when I was like, you know, drinking the secret Kool-Aid, um, <laughs> like I still was always coming back to 
this intuitive pang in my chest that was asking myself, but would you feel right about walking into, um, I know I keep going back to like the Pine Ridge Reservation, but you know, people that are in extreme hardship and tell them like, hey, you're a creator of your reality and all you got to do is raise your vibration and your frequency and all your problems will be solved. You know, you can go from this to a mansion with a convertible and the love of your life. Like, all you need to do is call it in. Like, and the answer was always, no, I can't do that. And I can't do that with this system. And so as an anarchist, of course, I'm inclined to believe that, you know, the system, like, you know, of law of attraction uh, as, you know, a branded type of thinking. And like you said, much like an organized religion, basically now, uh, just like the political system that I live in here in the States, it's not broken. It's actually functioning really, really well. And that's why it must be, you know, dismantled and destroyed. (laughs) And I would love to uh, replace it with something much more intersectional because, all of those, um, all of those like tenants are not intersectional. There's always somebody and something very important being left out of those conversations in every single one of those things. So, you know, it's just not intersectional. <laughs> and the mic is dropped. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That is, I mean, there's no you've really put into words everything that I know a lot of us in this space feel, but haven't actually found, because quite frankly, many of us haven't had to find, you know, as, as privileged people, we haven't had to find a way to really figure out these nuances. And I, I just love what you've said. And I hope that everybody listening listens to that, takes it to heart and not re- I would say rewind. Cause like, you know, I remember when you rewinded things, <laughs> but I hope you all go back and listen to it again. So in closing, I would, why don't you share where people can find you online, share about any upcoming services or uh, things you're launching or ways that we can work with you and support your work further. Cool. Yeah. Uh, you can find me all over the internet. Um, first and foremost, the easiest way to find me is revolutionarymystic.com. That's my website. That's where you can, you know, book spiritual services with me, of course. Um, you can also find out more about classes. And I have uh, a full service Hoodoo Botanica on there, too. Um, which is really cool uh, because it's kind of like a modern version of the things that I grew up with. And it's, you know, a labor of love of mine. And the other place you can find me, of course, is on Instagram, um, revolutionary underscore mystic. And on Twitter, I have a YouTube channel. um, And I also have a free Facebook group, um, That's a safe space for folks of all marginalized identities and also for our allies and um, most importantly, allies that are wanting to become accomplices. And so it's kind of a unique place where, um, you know, we're having important conversations and um, it's still a sacred safe space to practice, you know, that sacred activism. So all of those places. And let's see, what else am I up to? Oh, of course, check out the Revolutionary Mystic podcast too. 
if you love this podcast with Caitlin, I'm sure you would love the Revolutionary Mystic podcast too. Um, and uh, let's see. Oh, I also teach. That's the other thing I do. I teach monthly classes. Um, you can find out about what class I'm teaching next and all that kind of thing on uh, Patreon is one of the best ways to support me. If you are looking to support me in, you know, a direct action type of way, um, there are various cool things you can get on there for supporting my work. One of them is the monthly classes where I teach hoodoo and psychic skills. And next year I have a whole lineup of really cool, like, uh, re-indigenizing spirituality courses. And that's not just for indigenous folks. It's, it's kind of like saying decolonizing, but from an indigenous perspective. So those are the ways you can find me. And I look forward to connecting with everybody and anybody, really. <laughs> Thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you so much for coming on. And everyone who's listening, be sure to check out everything that Megan just um, introduced us to. I'm going to be including the links in the show notes. And especially be sure to check out their amazing shop, like super, super all-inclusive online shop, uh, fixed candles, um, magical oils, herb blends, and so, so, so much more. So thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, as always, you can reach out to me on Instagram at rebirth underscore of Venus. If you have questions or comments, or words of support for Megan Alexandria, I will include their Instagram link in the show notes as well. Thank you all so much for listening. And I can't wait to talk to you all again soon. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, be sure to leave a five-star review in the Apple Podcast app and share it with a friend. I would love to hear from you. Let's continue the conversation on Instagram. DM me at rebirth underscore of Venus. And be sure to grab your free ritual guide at rebirthofvenus.com.